Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. How you doing? Great to see you here in the Worship Center on the Ridge joining us. Um, awesome. It's great. We've got a lot going on this weekend. We've got uh, 80 people down in Mexico this weekend. They're down there. Uh, are they back yet? You're back. You're back. Awesome. You made it back. I just said, as soon as I said that, I remember where I was and what time it was. Like, they may be here. And so sure enough, you are there. Good job. I hope that went well. Uh, this water well initiative, crazy. Uh, I was asking our accounting office this week, and we started these back in 2010. I was just curious, uh, you know, like, uh, how much money have we raised over, since 2002? We've done this once a year. And, you know, it's up to, uh, already it's like $330,000 uh, that was coming in. And so now we've, we've provided water wells for over 80 communities that didn't have water. And uh, we're getting kind of bigger and better every year. So it's an exciting, uh, an exciting time. So uh, like when, and that fight night thing, you know, like we were cutting it off at, I don't know, 1,200. That's like as many people can get in here. We only have like seriously like 100 left or something. And so that's no joke on that. If, you, if you're interested, uh, like that's, they're not just making that up to get you to buy tickets. That's, uh, we want to quit announcing it. So <laughs> we just want to sell it out and then it'll be closed down. Um, so uh, that's, that's for real. And so if you are on your app right now, I can see you. Um, uh, and uh, you should have already done that. I'm talking long enough right now. So, uh, all right. So we're going to go into our time of teaching. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. If you're brand new, uh, just welcome here. We're glad, so glad you're with us. But we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week. And uh, you just want to take that out and we're ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's go. God, we're just excited to be here on this journey of pursuing you together as a church and uh, Lord, as we're learning this new paradigm, the paradigm of the presence and how we were created to live in the presence, how we lost that presence, how you're pursuing us to restore your presence in our life. God, we pray that today you would fill this place with your presence. And we pray the prayer of Moses that if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. God, the, the one thing we want more than anything else in our life is your presence. We pray you'd meet us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today uh, early in the morning. In fact, sun hasn't come up. Um, he's lying in bed. He spent the night at a friend's house, but he's woken up early, and he's decided to get up and go out into the uh, pre-dawn air. And so you know how it is when you spend a night at someone's house, like a new hotel or something, you're not really aware of things. You're going to have to let your eyes adjust to, uh, to the darkness, and you're trying not to hit any furniture because you don't want to wake up anyone else in the house. Um, but he eventually makes it to the front door, and, uh, and he's able to, to kind of make his way out. So he steps outside into the cool, uh, cool breeze outside. It's a beautiful day, beautiful night. Um, it's, uh, stars are out, and um, he can't, you know, he's not sure what time it is, but he would guess from the stars probably an hour or two before, uh, before daybreak. And so he's excited. He's going to go out and spend some time alone. So he's going to head west. Uh, he's going to go outside of the, the town. It's about 10,000 people. He's going to go outside the town, and there on the edge of the, uh, kind of the edge, maybe a mile or two away, there's a, uh, there's a cliff. It's uh, kind of a big mountaintop, and you can climb up maybe an hour, hour and a half, and uh, you can get up on top and watch the sunrise, and so that's his destination. So today, we are continuing this series we kicked off last week called Pursuing God One-on-One. -on -one. And if you're brand new, a great time to be joining us. Um, and so what we've been learning in this series so far is much like the last series, that God has an epic vision for our lives, and not just for our lives, but for all of 
uh, creation. And like I've often said, no exaggeration, no lie. It's the way it is. We've talked about that. And so there's many ways to describe this big picture story, this epic vision the Bible is telling. And so one way uh, to describe it that we introduced last week, I have a new way. I called it the paradigm of the presence. And so the story of the Bible can be summed up as uh, the story of the presence. We were created to live in the presence of God. How we lost that presence and how God has been pursuing us through time, through history, through Abraham and, and through the nation of Israel and through the prophets and then through, uh, through uh, the Messiah and through the coming of the Spirit to restore His presence in our lives. But we've also learned that this is a two-way pursuit. Right? So the story, the, the story of the Bible starts in Genesis with us walking in the garden, the, the creation of the heavens and the earth, walking in the garden with God. It ends in Revelation with us, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, and living, dwelling in the new city of God. And so, uh, but what we've seen is it's a, this is a two-way pursuit. Uh, God is pursuing us, but he's looking for people who will pursue him. As Jesus said to the woman at the well we've been studying, that uh, God is seeking for people, searching for people who want to know him in spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and know Him in truth the way He really is. And so today, this message, the second message in the series is called The Pursuit of the Presence. How do we pursue that? And so what I want to do there, you know, you've got a section called The uh, Pursuit of the Presence, Broken Cisterns, and the New Covenant. And what I want to do is kind of give you just a, a snapshot where we're going today, then we're going to jump in. And so if we stand back from this whole message... What we're going to see is that you and I were designed to live in the presence of God. In the same way that a fish is designed to live in the sea, in the same way that a, an eagle is designed to fly into the heavens, you and I were designed to live in the presence of God. But because of our rebellion as a race, something broken, and we have an allergic reaction to God now as a race. And so what happens is that what we do is we try to meet this need for God that we were designed to live in His presence. We try to meet that with something else, a person, a place, a thing, something else in life to meet the need of this deep need that we have for the presence of God. And what that leads to is brokenness and emptiness. We not only lose God, we lose ourselves. And so uh, the story today, we're going to see how this story plays out today in the life of the nation of Israel, because it's sort of a microcosm, like a case study of the human race. And so if you were here last week, uh, we, we, we studied a little bit the story of Israel. We watched as they came out of Egypt, how God rescued them from Moses, how they traveled for three months to, uh, to Mount Sinai, how God revealed himself this amazing display of power there, the thunder, the lightning, the dark clouds, the smoke, the, the, the trumpets, and so on, and how he spoke to them from the darkness, and he invited them into a relationship, much like a marriage relationship, uh, and it, was, uh, like a, it was a covenantal relationship. They would be his people, he would be their God, and so it's basically like a wedding proposal, and they said, I do. And so he had rescued them from slavery. He had taken care of them the last three months supernaturally. They were very excited to enter in this relationship. And so he said, well, here are the first two rules of our relationship. Every relationship has rules. When you get married, for better or worse, rich or poor, there's rules. And here's, here's well, so rule number one. This is an exclusive relationship. 
If I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and you can't have any other gods. This is like a marriage. And then number two, no images, no idols, because any image of me that you make will give you a, a kind of a wrong impression of who I am. It will limit who I am and what the relationship will be. So they say yes, and they get the rest of the, the kind of the Ten Commandments. And, uh, but it's, such an, it's an awesome experience, but it's so overpowering. They send Moses up the mountain. You get the rest of the details. The mountain's on its a chimney. The thing's been burning up, scaring them to death. So Moses goes up, and now it's been a month and a half later, and uh, he hasn't come back. Last they saw him, he was going into the fire. So they're getting nervous, and they say to Aaron, we need another God. They're going to revert to their old style of Egypt, and they're going to say, we need another God. They do the, the, the whole golden calf thing. And so we talked about this last time. This was a tremendous breach of a relationship. This is like someone having an affair, like a, like a new bride having an affair 40 days into her marriage because her husband's been gone for 40 uh, days to Europe on business and she's not sure he's coming back. Right? So uh, it's a tremendous breach of relationship. But what we see today, we're going to see today, is this was not a one time affair, this was not a tender moment. <laughs> This was, uh, this was a kind of a lifestyle for Israel. Uh, this became a way of life, this running after other gods, this spiritual adultery. And so when we, if we fast forward today, about 800 years in time, we come to the time of prophet Jeremiah. Time is pretty much running out for Israel. The northern 10 tribes have already got into exile because of their sin about 100 year, over 100 years before. Judah's all that's left in the south. The capital's there, Jerusalem. And because of these constant running after their gods. God has said their time is short. Uh, destruction is coming. And so it's in that context that God raises up the prophet Jeremiah to speak to them. And so today we're going to spend some time in Jeremiah chapter 2 as we see the big picture story of Israel in Jeremiah 2. Now, just to make it easy, I put it all there in your note sheet. So all the same version and so on. And so, um, so Here's how the story starts. In the beginning of chapter 2, very early on, um, God speaks to Israel. and He said, I remember the devotion of your youth and how as a what? Okay, let's say it again. As a what? I want you to catch this. This is the core analogy, the metaphor that, that God is, you know, he is the husband. They are his bride. And he says, I remember back. I remember the early days. I remember Mount Sinai. I remember how you said, I do. I remember those early, you were willing to follow me through the wilderness. But he said, it didn't last very long. And uh, of course, what we've seen then is that ever since then, there's been a history of idolatry, running after their gods. So he goes next, and next verse says, so what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? In other words, uh, and, and what did I do wrong? This is like a, a husband saying to a wife who's had that affair when he comes back from Europe, like, like what, what did I do wrong? Is there something I did? Is it something I said? Is there anything that caused this? And of course, there wasn't. It was just them, right? And so the answer is no. But then he goes on and he says, they followed worthless idols and they became what? Let's say it again. They became what? Yeah, so when we pursue things other than God, uh, what happens is we become like those things and we lose, lose touch not only with God, we lose touch with our true identity. Okay? And so, um, so anyway, in a few verses down, God says, so my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me for the spring of what? What did Jesus say, the woman at the well, offer her? Yeah, no accident. Right? So, uh, my sin, maybe people have committed two sins. He says, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug out their own what? 
cisterns, right? And they're not just cisterns, they're broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So let's talk about Israel. When we go to Israel, and uh, by the way, next weekend, um, after the service, I'll be here for next, teaching next weekend, but after the service, we're taking our next group to Israel. And uh, we're excited about that. And so, but when we go to Israel, our very first day, one of the sites we go is a place called Bet Shemesh. It's, uh, it means house of the sun. And so, so it's, it's one of our first sites, like our second site in. And the reason we go there, uh, Bet Shemesh was a Levitical city. And uh, it's a place where the Ark of God was returned from the Philistines after they captured it. And after seven months, that was wreaking so much havoc. They're like, you can have it back. Uh, so it came back to Bet Shemesh. But there at Bet Shemesh, they've recently discovered, I mean, in the last five, 10 years, they've recently discovered a huge underground cistern. So what you find in Israel, what we learned that very first day in Israel is that Israel is a very dry land. Water means life. Where there's water, there's life. Where there's not water, there's death. And you begin to understand that. And so uh, what we do that very first day, we go down into the cistern. Uh, it's a little dangerous, but you know, you signed a release form. So uh, we go down into this. We, it's funny, the very first time we went there, serious, this place, it holds 50,000 gallons of water. It is huge and it's dark. It's not really designed to go into. Uh, it's not like, you know, you buy a ticket and go in, you know, uh, it's just kind of there. And uh, so we go down. It's really funny because it does have these four big caverns in it and it goes off four different directions. And this one like, ah, she went over. We didn't know how deep it was. Fortunately, it wasn't that bad. And ever since then, I warned people. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, if, right, get a bigger flashlight. Uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, uh, one, so what we learn is we learn about cisterns. And so cisterns played a big role in Israel's life because it's so dry. So during rainy season, you collect the water, you divert it in these big underground, dug out of rock uh, reservoirs. And then, uh, of course, the water is not the greatest water. I mean, you, you gather it, you know, in February, you're still drinking in August or September or whatever. It's like, it's, it's old, it's moldy. It's maybe animals have fallen and died. You know, it's just not the best water, but hey, you know, it keeps you alive, right? And so, but one of the dangers, if you have a cistern, the dangers of building a cistern is sometimes ground shifts, uh, crack in the cistern, and then all of a sudden your water drains away. So you go to your 50,000 gallon uh, cistern and there's nothing in it, like when we go in ours, right? So, uh, so anyway, uh, God says, all right, so on the other side, there's what he calls living water. So in Israel, living water means running water. It means water that's coming from a spring, a brook, a stream. It's fresh water. And so God says, you've committed two sins. He said, I'm your source of your life. I'm your living water. This is why Jesus used this analogy. Hey, you're here getting water at the well, but uh, I'm here going to give you living water. And so he says, I, I'm your true source of life, and, but you've forsaken me, the source of your true life, living water, and you've dug out for yourself cisterns, but they're not just cisterns, they're broken cisterns that don't have any water. And so this is the scenario, right? And so um, when Jesus is coming to the woman at the well, he's referring to Jeremiah. And talking about this living water that we are designed, this kind of new relationship with God, this presence of God that brings us life. Now, here's the thing. What I want you to catch today is the story of Israel is like a microcosm of the human race. It's like a case study on the human race. If you want to know the heart of the human race, you look at Israel and how they responded. How would a people respond when you gave them the advantages of God, the right teaching, the path to life? Well, we see what happens. And so what we see 
is that this is not just Israel's problem. This is all of our problem. There's something broken in us as a race that because of our rebellion, we have this uh, allergic reaction to God and we're going to seek something else in our life to quench the deepest thirst of our life other than God. And so we run after other things to quench this deep, it's like our, our broken cistern. So let's talk about how that works out in our life. So I'm going to give you like, so, so what do we do? What, what do we turn to? Well, what we do is we turn to something in creation instead of pursuing the creator. And so let me give you five examples. I'm going to call these the five P's, all right? So uh, you can just jot them down somewhere. And I want to see kind of what your natural tendency is. I think we all have a different natural tendency to pursue something else as a false god to create idols in our life. Um, but uh, you'll see which one, you know, see which one you gravitate for. But, but one way we do that is we, we try to make people our God. Okay, so the first P is for people. And of course, we can do this in a wide variety of ways. Um, one of the biggest gods of our culture, false gods of our culture today is romance. Right? That we believe if we just find the right person uh, we find the right person and we fall in love and we just find the right person, that will satisfy the deepest thirst of our life. And so we're, gonna, we're going to wrap our life around that pursuit. We're going to pursue that romance because we believe that will satisfy the deepest thirst. Uh, it doesn't have to be romance. So it could be something else. It could be, okay, uh, I, I just want to have this right person. I want to get married. That's my thing. Or I want to have kids. And, and so we build our life around our kids and our kids become our ultimate value. They become what we serve the most, what we pursue most, because we believe that, that if we build uh, these great relationships with our kids, that will satisfy the greatest this thirst of our life. Uh, for other people, it's a family. You know, hey, nothing's better than family. Nothing's more important than family. Family's it. It's our top value. For others, it's even uh, another form of community. Like I was recently uh, listening to a book uh, about the downtown, uh, the Las Vegas downtown project, it was called, that was started by uh, the head of Zappos uh, years ago, and they're trying to create this ideal, uh, almost a utopian type uh, thing. And, and people all over the country, you know, sharp people came because they, this vision of community, that this is what life is about. So often we take, uh, we, we, take some, we take people and we say, that is my highest value. I will pursue that uh, because I believe that will satisfy me. Uh, second P is uh, possessions, you know? Hey, if I just got that uh, lifted four-wheel drive, uh, pickup truck, I'd be awesome. You know, I'd be good to go. Uh, life would be good. And so what, it could take a million different forms, but some of our possessions, the things that money can buy, security, a port, big portfolio, that we just kind of, if we, if we pursue these possessions and we can attain those, you know, the, mo one, the person with the most to uh, toys wins, that we, we, we will be happy. A third P uh, is the P of power or position. You know, for many people, it's like attaining a certain, if I can get the quarterback on the football team, if I can make the team, uh, if I can get into the college of my choice, if I can get the career of my choice, once I get there, if I can go up the ladder, if I can get the corner office, whatever it is, but there's some sort of position or pursuit. And so you, when you look at this person's life, it's pretty clear. This is their top value in their life. They will sacrifice pretty much anything for it. They may say their family is a top priority, but really when you look at their life, it doesn't, it doesn't really bear out because when it comes family or this uh, achievement, this achievement's always going to win. Um, a, a, number, a fourth, uh, fourth P would be the P of pleasure. 
And so for some people, they're going to live for pleasure. Now, this comes in different varieties. There's kind of lowbrow pleasure and there's highbrow pleasure, right? So, so like lowbrow is just, you know, hey, uh, sex, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's a party life. It's just, you know, feeding the sentence or the uh, senses. Uh, on the other side, you can have the sophisticated version of this. The person who's all about knowing everything about fine wine, everything about uh, food. Uh, they, they, they can, they're very discriminating palate. And they're just into the finer things of life. You know, it's the, per, the right perfumes, the right, you know, these things just bring this kind of pleasure. Uh, and then the fifth P, I'm going to call it popularity. And so for some people, it's like uh, uh, being in the in crowd is their top value. You know, it's like, hey, as long as I'm accepted by my friends, that's it. Their biggest fear is rejection. They'll do anything not to be rejected. Their highest value in, in life is to, to be accepted, to be popular, to be loved, right? Now, here's the thing. I want you to catch this. I want you to remember what I'm about to say. This is very, very important. We're going to come back later. That you can tell what a person's God is by what they pursue the most, what we pursue the most as our highest value, that by definition is our God. It's our ultimate value. This is what we pursue the most. This becomes our God. Now, of course, the, the irony of this, as God is saying to, through Jeremiah, is that when you pursue something other than God to satisfy this deepest thirst of our heart that it ends up not satisfying, uh, they, it, you know, it's, it, it may satisfy for a while, but it's no long-lasting, uh, thirst-quenching quality to this. Uh, it's going to lead, and the more we do this, we're, we're going to end up. Uh, more we pursue a false god, we, not only do we it not satisfy us, but what, what leaves us empty, it leaves us broken, um, and it leaves us uh, losing our true identity that we're created for. Our true identity as a person created in the image of God. And so, the, and the, the other irony about this is that these things that we pursue are actually good things most of the time. If you look at these Ps, you know, people, one of God's greatest gifts to us, people, right? Uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, friends or family or marriage or kids or grandkids. I mean, one of the greatest things in life is, is like this, one of his greatest gifts. You look at, uh, you look at uh, things like uh, 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 possessions. You know, in 1 Timothy, it says that God richly blesses us with everything to enjoy. Like, everything he's given, is, it's a gift of his love. Uh, you think of the pleasures of life. They're gifts. Like, Satan doesn't create pleasures. He only perverts pleasures. God is the source of all pleasure, right? This was his idea. And so, here's the thing, though. In our lives, when we take a good thing and we make it the best thing, it becomes a bad thing. And the irony is even more is that when you take something else other than God and you make it your highest value, you will put a weight upon that thing they were not designed to bear. In other words, if you, you give yourself to your career. You're going to give yourself a career so that you will be happy and fulfilled. That's your highest value. When you get there, it cannot, satisfy, it cannot sustain you. You are, you're asking it to do something. Is a great career great? Yes, it's a tremendous gift. But if you make it the ultimate thing, it will let you down. It can't hold the weight of your expectations. This has tremendous implications. Let me give you an example. It has tremendous implications for marriage. I believe one of the, the reasons marriages today in our country are struggling so much is because we bought so much into this romance myth that if I find the right person, I'll be happy we meet someone, we fall in love with them, we get, we get married to them, we, they, they're now our God, 
and we expect them to make us happy. We have put an expectation on you. The reason I married you was you made me happy. If you stop making me happy, I need to look for someone else to make me happy because you are no longer meaning it. And what we don't realize, that's not how love works. It's not how romance works. It's not how marriage works. And so what happens is we go through life looking for one person after another to try to make us happy. Uh, and the thing is, is when you put that kind of expectation on your spouse, you, no spouse can ever meet that expectation. You're asking them to do something for you they were never designed to do. They were designed to be a good thing, not the ultimate thing. And when you ask a good thing to be the ultimate thing, you put a weight of expectation that will crush that person and crush your marriage. You see, you have to be able to be happy in your marriage apart from your marriage. If you want to be, have a happy marriage, you need to be happy apart from being married. You need to be, you need to be like, I have a life. You know, I, I have a passion for life. I've got a passion for God. I've got a passion for his kingdom. I've, I, I want to make a difference. There's things going on in my life. I'm not asking my wife to make me happy. We want to share the pursuit together. And as we share the pursuit together, we're happy together. When we're face to face, you make me happy. No, you make me happy. No, you make me happy. You make me happy. No, you go first. We are putting a pressure on our marriage. It was never designed to hold. Hey, look at children. Uh, some, what happened? Maybe they'll say that someone's in a bad marriage. And so what they do is like, well, I'm going to throw myself into my kids. And they make their kids their God. And their life revolves around their kids. And then their kids get up and they start becoming, in, grow up and start becoming independent. They want a little space from mom. And mom's like, no, 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 you're my God. No, 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 no. I'll go with you on this journey. Okay, so, so who are you marrying? Okay, great. That's great. He can stand here. I'm going to stand right here. Right? I'm going to be right here in this thing. And so that's great. Let me put my arms around you. It's like, hey, shut up. She's my daughter. Okay, right? And pretty soon what happens is the daughter says, mom, you got to leave this thing. Like you're ruining my marriage. You know, but you, but you, hey, but you're my God. You have put a weight of expectation on your kids. They were never designed to... to uh, to, to carry. And so what happens when you make your kids your God, you drive your kids away from you. When you make something that is a good thing, the best thing, it becomes a bad thing. So the crazy thing about our race is that we cannot seem to learn this. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, the guy, just the guy's like, if I just have that four-wheel drive, that lifted truck, man, I would be so happy. And then he gets the truck, and it's awesome for about three months. And then the payments start coming, right? <laughs> and then he looks and goes, you know, this truck is awesome, but it's empty in the back. I need to get a couple dirt bikes and put in that thing, you know? <laughs> and then it would be awesome, right? And then he puts the dirt bikes in, and about three months later, he's like, you know, that's really cool, but it's such a hassle. You know what would be great? Having a toy trailer. That would be great, right? And then he crashes it all. And he's back where he started worthless, right? And like, this is how we never learn. If I reach that position, I will be happy. And then we reach that, and it's like, no, we got to go for the next one. I mean, have you, how many people in your life do you like, hey, I have made too much money. I am just done with this. I don't want to make anything more. I got everything I need, and I am done. You know, I mean, how, like, it doesn't happen, right? It's like we, we have this, insa- it's like we're insatiable, 
We keep running after other gods. Hey, that God didn't do it, but this God will. That God didn't, but this God will. In fact, and this is the state of our race. I mean, it's just the way we're wired. We're hardwired. Uh, the fallen nature is hardwired. Uh, one person called us uh, idol-making idol factories. And that's a great description. We, we, just like, we just look around. Hey, will you be my idol? Will you be my idol? Will you be? And God's over here. I'm living water here. And it's like, no, no, I want a broken cistern. I'm looking broken cistern. All right, so, and this is just the way it works. And so it's interesting because the nation of Israel, God says, you guys, you are so much like running after these other gods, so much into adultery. You're like a, a, like a wild she donkey in heat. That's so awesome. I was telling my assistant that this week, you know, she's looking at the handout and she's going, are you going to print this? It's like, yes, it's the Bible, you know? I went to, look what he says. He says, uh, this is the same chapter. It's all part of the same story. He says, you are a, a swift she-camel running here and there. You're a wild donkey, donkey, accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? He says, any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they'll find her. And then so God says to Israel, Israel, you've got to, it's like you're, like you're, you're running, pursuing these other gods. He says, your, your feet are bare. Your throat's parched, it's dry from the, the dry air. It's running after these other gods. And, and he says, but you said it's of no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. Is that not our story? The human heart, apart from Jesus, the human heart is an idol-making factory and we never learn. But what's interesting is that in Jeremiah, later in Jeremiah, God shows up. He says, all right, we're going to do something new. You know, that whole first relation, that first covenant that we did at Mount Sinai, we kind of entered into this marriage-like relationship. It's not really working out. And of course, the reason it's not working out is nothing wrong with the covenant. Sometimes we misunderstand this. You know, Jesus said that the law of God could all be summarized by two, by two laws, love God, love people. It was a beautiful thing. The Ten Commandments are a path to life. Are you kidding me? Like, the t hey, don't commit adultery. Well, if you've ever been married, do you want your spouse to commit adultery? No, it's a path to life. Don't steal. Hey, do you want your neighbors stealing from you? No, this is just telling you, this is what love looks like. Right? So it's a beautiful thing. But what the law does is it reveals the brokenness of our race. The law reveals this brokenness that runs after other things. And so God says this first covenant, it did not work out. <coughs> of course, he knew that, but he's telling them. Didn't work out. He said, I'm going to initiate a new covenant. And this is amazing. When we talk about God pursuing us, instead of saying, that's it, I'm done, he says, I will continue to pursue you, but I'm going to initiate a new covenant. And this time, I'm not going to write my law on stone tablets. I'm going to write them on your hearts. In other words, I'm going to change you from the inside out so you have the capacity for loyal love. You know, think of, think of the wife as just serial adultery. She has no capacity for true relationship. She only has capacity for promiscuous sex. And God says, That's you, but I'm going to change your heart so you have the capacity for real relationship. And so in, I, in Jeremiah 31... God says, so the days are coming, 
Uh, so you know, maybe put a mark around that because we're going to come back. You'll, you'll need that for later. The days are coming. So this is in the future. In the future, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. When I will make a what? Okay, circle that. A new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, you know, 800 years ago, when I took them out by hand out of, out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a what? Husband. See, we're working on that analogy. I'm a husband to them. And he said, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time in the future. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their what? Their hearts. Yeah, not on stone. I'll be their God and they will be my people. By the way, that whole phrase, I will be their God, and they will be, remember that. Because what you see is that comes up over and over and over in the Old Testament. This is God's vision that I will be their God. They will be my people. It's a way of talking about covenant relationship. And guess what? At the end of the story of the presence, Revelation 21, we read it last week, the new Jerusalem comes down, the new heavens, the new earth. God's on the throne. He says that, uh, he says, and finally they will dwell with me and I will be their God and they will be my people. It's the same story all the way through. The same vision, never changes. And so, he says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. In other words, they're not going to have to tell one another, hey, what's wrong with you? Get on the bandwagon, you know, pursue God. Uh, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. Now, I want to point out three, thing, three marks of the covenant. The, what, what's the new covenant? Three things happen. Very important. Just write these down somewhere. Number one, the first thing that happens is forgiveness, right? We just read that, the very last line. I'll forgive their wickedness, all this adultery. I'll forgive their wickedness, and I'll remember their sins no more. First mark. Second mark is transformation. That God says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. He said, I'm going to write my law on your hearts this time. The third thing that happens is relationship. The reason for forgiveness and the reason for transformation is relationship. They build on each other. He forgives us and transforms us so we can have relationship. So how is he described? He says, they will know the Lord. He says that uh, no one will have to say to their brother, know the Lord. They'll all know me when this happens. When this time comes and I forgive them and transform them, it will lead to relationship. They will know me. They'll be drinking the living water. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. The vision has come full circle, right? Now, here's where it gets really interesting because when you go into the New Testament, let's go to the living water passage, right? John 4. We've been talking about that a couple weeks. Jesus at the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, she asked him a question. Hey, you say we need to worship in Jerusalem at the temple, the place where heaven meets earth. You say that, that the presence of God is there. We have to go there to seek the presence. We Samaritans, we built an alternate temple here on Mount Gerizim right here. And so which, which place do we go to pursue the presence? And Jesus says, it's neither one. He said, what did he, he say? A time is coming and now is. The time of Jeremiah has come. A time is coming and now is when we won't worship. You won't worship in a building. The presence of God won't be in a building. The presence of God will be in you. And he said, and you will know, you will come to know him. He says, God is looking for worshipers, seeking for worshipers who want to know him in the spirit, power of the spirit, and in truth as he really is. You'll know the Lord. And you say, well, are you sure that's what he's saying? Absolutely. Because 
At the last night, he's with his men after ministry. He's about to go to be uh, executed. The first covenant had to be instituted with blood. In Exodus 24, they entered that first covenant. There was a sacrifice. They entered in the covenant. And Jesus, at the last supper, as he's celebrating the Passover, he, he fills it with new meaning. <laughs> Look at your note sheet in Luke 22. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup of, this cup, you know, of course, the cup of, of wine, right, representing his blood. This cup is the new what? Can we say it again? It's the new what? It's a new covenant. Jesus, at that last Passover night, is initiating the new covenant. He is saying, the time prophesied by Jeremiah has come, and through my death, the blood, my, my blood, we are initiating the new covenant. And so what does the new covenant mean? It doesn't just mean forgiveness of sins. It means the three things we talked about. It means forgiveness. It means transformation by the power of the Spirit to become like God again. And it means new relationship. And so this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a worshiper in spirit and truth. We're people who've entered into covenant with God and we've experienced the life-transforming power of His Spirit. We've been forgiven by uh, forgiven through His death. We've received the gift of His Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out so that we can return to the presence and experience relationship with God. So if that's the story that God's telling, the story of the presence, the question is, so how do we pursue the presence in our life? How do we, how do we as true worshipers seek God in spirit and truth? And there in your note sheet, you have a section called Pursuing God, the Three-Legged Stool. And I introduced this uh, this week in your Pursuing God journals. You've seen it. But I, when I think of pursuing God, uh, there are many ways we pursue God, aren't there? But I think there's three core ways. I like to compare them to the three legs of a three-legged stool. And of course, you need all three for the stool to stand. And so uh, I want to just, uh, just expand a little bit on what the journal said, more on what the journal said. And so let's, let's jump through it. So the first leg, let's call the first leg. The first way we pursue God is we pursue God in large groups, right? So uh, like this setting here is a large group setting. This would take in other large group settings too. For example, a Good Friday service, an encounter service. You go to a worship conference and say, I want to go up to see what's going on at Bethel. I'm going to go up there and, and check that. You know, there's other large groups, right? But, but the main thing is our weekly weekend service, right? Where we, we gather together. So I hope that when you're coming, you're not punching, a, you're getting your card punched. I hope you're not just coming for donuts. I hope you're coming to pursue God, right? That's why we come to pursue God. And so we come in, and so we do that in many ways. We pursue them in worship. We pursue them in the word. We pursue them in baptisms. We pursue them in communion. We pursue them in prayer in a wide variety of ways. But the two, uh, the two, uh, the two things we do the most in our large group service that are I think, most important for our spiritual health are our worship and the word. Uh, you can worship in your small group, right? Like this last week, um, we had uh, uh, our first life group uh, that I'm leading. And it's a relatively new group. We did Rooted together. But, and, but we hadn't really done worship during Rooted because we had so much going on with Rooted. But with, now that we're doing this, uh, new, this new study, we are doing worship. So it was our first time of kind of worshiping on night, and it was amazing. It was off the charts. It was just we started with a couple songs. We 
blasted it out loud. We turned the lights down low. And God, the presence, it was just a very powerful time. And it's awesome, right? And you can worship one-on-one. You can worship with your, the Lord by yourself. You can do that. But there's something special when you have a large group of believers coming together who are hungry for God. Now, this is not true in like every place. Just because it's a large group, this doesn't happen. In fact, there's some places where it's a large group experience that drains you. You come in believing in Jesus, you go out wondering if he's alive, right? <laughs> but but if, you're, if you're coming to a place where people are pursuing God together, it's a very powerful experience to experience the presence of God pursuing him in worship. Uh, same is true with the word. These like weekend services largely are great for times of teaching the word. You know, in Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul says that God has, give, has given leadership gifts to the church. He said he's given gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And he said these are God's, it's Jesus' gifts to the church, and their, their assignment is to help every person grow and thrive so they, they grow up, they become all they're meant to be, and they use their gifts to carry out the kingdom ministry of Jesus, right? And he said so as they, as they do their job, the whole church grows, right? So what happens when you're in a, a, a growing church, a healthy church, the word is being taught, people are growing, eyes are being opened, we're getting new vision for who God is, who we are, the path to life, and we are growing, we're pursuing God, we hear the voice of God through the teaching on the weekends, and it makes a difference, and it's a huge part of our pursuit of God. So large group uh, gatherings are very important, right? And this is why it's important that we're here and so on. We'll talk more in a minute. Okay, second, the second leg on our stool is what I'm called small groups. So here at Rocky Peak, we'd call them uh, life groups. But the great thing about small groups is it gives us a chance to connect with one another and grow together. Uh, large groups are great for teaching and the word. They're not great for a relationship. And if we're going to pursue God, we need a band of brothers. We need a band of sisters. We, we need to be with one another. We need to be sharing our lives, encouraging one another, speaking into each other. Here's what I'm learning. What are you learning? Like if you're in a life group and all that happens is like, uh, uh, like uh, talking about the Dodgers, the weather, you know, the sale of your house, that's a bad thing, right? Like what hap- should be happening in our life groups? In a good life group, we are challenging one another. We are growing together. We're sharing our journey. Here's what the Lord showed me this week. Here's what he's doing in my life. What's he doing in your life? And we are like iron sharpening iron. We get inspired, right? We come together. We identify gifts and we encourage each other in ministry. And there's a lot going on. And it's powerful to pursue God together in a smaller community. And so there in your note sheet, Hebrews 10, let us consider, let's think about how, to, how we, stir, we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, right? So we gather to spur one another on. And so small groups are great for that. So it's both large groups, small groups, very important legs. But there's a third leg, and this is the one I think in our culture, not in China. <laughs> Underground church in China, they don't have this problem, right? But for here in our culture, this third leg is the one we tend to neglect. It's like we don't really believe it's that really important, and that's one-on-one. That we have come to a place where we think if we just uh, go to church and we, uh, we are in a small group, then that's good. We should be growing, but you know, how many legs does a stool need? <laughs> like you need three, right? So you're going to be like not getting everything you need. That there's something special. If you want to pursue God, uh, if, if, just follow me here. If we are created for relationship, if we are designed to live in the presence of God, like eagles are designed to fly in the heavens and fish are in the sea, we need time with God one-on-one. 
If God is created to be our, if he is to be our first love, our highest priority, our deepest passion, we need one-on-one time. It's just how relationships work. Like, for example, let's say there's a young man. He's in our young adult ministry. We call the RPYA, right? And so, the, yeah, yeah, all right. There's a shout out there. Okay, so, uh, like, let's say, okay, I'll talk to you guys, right? So let's say one of you guys, all right? So you've got your eyes on a girl in the group, right? And you decide you want to pursue her, right? So you can look at her right now, and I'll tell you. It's a good, good call or not, right? Uh, so let's say you're going to pursue her, right? And so you, let's say you're in the same life group. So you've seen her in large group. You've seen her on Sunday nights. They've got an awesome group, right? It's over 100 people, and they're just doing great. So they decide they're, 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 on, uh, they're on Sunday nights. You've seen her. You've observed her there. You've met her. You've had some. And then you're actually in the small group. You maneuvered to get in her small group. And so you are now there uh, seeking Jesus and her. And, uh, and so... You've maneuvered and you've got to know her in a small group and you, you've just confirmed everything you believe. She's awesome. She loves Jesus. She loves people. She's got everything. She is perfect. Uh, and so you've, you've confirmed all that. At a certain point, you have to pursue her, right? You can't just sit back. You're like, you have to say, okay, if I really want a deep, like if this is a potential mate, if this is a potential first love, if this is a potential marriage, you can't just hang in groups and small groups. You have to go after the person one-on-one because only one-on-one can you share your heart, share their heart. It's where intimacy and bonds and trust is created that, that creates a foundation for a love that can last a lifetime. It cannot happen in a big group. It can't happen in a small group. Great things happen there but you have to pursue one-on-one. Yeah. And for my next talk on love and dating, uh, no. (laughs) All right, so uh, it's the same in our relationship with God. Large group time, awesome. Small group time, awesome. They all have their place, but if we want to pursue God, if he's going to be our first love, our highest priority, our deepest passion, we have to pursue him one-on-one. It's what we were designed for. But the crazy thing is, here in our culture, like I say, not everyone, in our culture here in the States, for whatever reason, we tend to see this as the extra credit of the Christian life. Now, uh, just to be clear here, this, there's no shame here or guilt here. I'm describing a dynamic. I really believe this, that we just don't understand the role this plays. Like for most of us uh, here in this room, we understand the importance of large group gatherings. We schedule our life around them. Now I realize that not everyone here, there's some of you here that you kind of come when you feel like it. And I get that. And this would be a good learning for you why that's not okay. But <laughs> you're like, my life is just not working. I don't know. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, hey, try it on half a leg, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so we get that, you know, that for most of us here, probably we're saying, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't get up on the weekend, or we don't say to your, to your wife, like, hey, do you feel like going to church today? Yeah, not really. Okay, let's not. Like, the discussion's probably more like this. Like, hey, do you want to go Saturday or Sunday? Right? And then like, but it's, like, you don't decide every week when you go to church. It's just part of your habit. It's a spiritual habit. For most of us here, we're in a life group. You know, life group, you don't just go, hey, are we going to, are we going to life group? Am I going to life group? And it's like it's Wednesday night. We go to life group. Someone says, hey, can I, be, can I do something Wednesday No, we can't. We have life group. Remember in our church goes, oh, I get it. Can't trump that. All right. All right, so we get that. So we schedule our life around weekends. We schedule our life around small groups because we believe they're important to pursue God. But we don't schedule our life around time one-on-one. 
we somehow think that that is just not really that necessary. And I am becoming more and more convinced, and this is what I think God has put in our church, the vision he's given us. It's why we're talking about it so much this last year. It's why we did Rooted. It's why we're doing We are convinced we cannot live epic lives if we don't live in the presence of God one-on-one. We cannot carry out our life mission. We will not experience the transformation God wants to do. It's like we're malnourished. And what's interesting is these three legs, they are, they are synergistic, both on an individual and a corporate level. Before we talk about that, let me just look at this quote here from Mark Batterson real good, real quick. This is one of the reasons that many people don't feel an intimacy with God is because they don't have a daily rhythm with God. They have a weekly rhythm. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Would that work with your spouse or your kids? It doesn't work with God's family either. We need to establish a daily rhythm or have a daily relationship, right? So let's talk about synergy. So here's what happens. In the life of a growing Christ follower, a passionate Christ, here's what happens. They're spending time with God one-on-one during the week. And so what, some of you experienced that for the first time or consistently during a rooted. And you experienced, and you know, it's so great. Like, hey, I started to grow. Yes. Right? So you started doing that, and what happened? Because you were meeting with God and learning, when you came to your life group, you had something to offer. You had something to share. This is what God's doing. And you, had, you came with expectation because you wanted to participate. And then, and then you come out of your life group and you come to the weekend and you're hungrier to grow. And you walk in this place and you're not just like, you know, just like kind of waking up. You're hungry to come. You're hungry to enter in the presence. You're hungry to worship. You, you want to see what God's going to do. And then when you come here, whatever, whoever's teaching that weekend, it goes deeper. Because it, the Holy Spirit's like, he's drawing connections between what you learned on Monday with him and what you learned here. And there's a, there's a synergy going. And it builds on each other. And it happens corporately too. When you have people in the word, and they're in a life group and they're sharing, guess what? When we come together on the weekend, you come with a whole different level of energy and expectation. You come ready. And when worship starts, you're ready. When you sing, do it again, you're excited to sing that, not because you like the tune, but because you experienced God doing it again this week. You experienced that. He met you again and encouraged you again. And so these words are not just words. They're the story of your life. And you enter in with passion. And you enter in with worship because you're so thankful that you're experiencing the God who does it again. Right? And, and so then what happens in, is that you're worshiping, and, and then we all begin to worship more. And, and there's an energy that builds. And then let's say I come up or Dre comes up to teach. When I come up, guess what? When you're ready, to, hungry to grow, I get better. So many people don't realize this. That when you're in a there is a, there is a synergistic relationship between whoever's teaching and whoever's receiving. And I tell you, there are some groups that are very hard to teach. And you're up here teaching, and you're teaching, and you're giving your best, and they're like. Now, when you're teaching, 
and you see a room like that, can you imagine the kind of mental things that go in your mind? Like, what's going on? Is this that bad? Is this horrible? Someone gets up there, no one's leaving? What's going on here? They come back 10 minutes later, the donut. <laughs> oh, it's intermission, I didn't realize. <laughs> what does that do to a teacher? It's distracting. Now, you take a same teacher, the same message, and you have a hungry congregation. Oh, my gosh. It's like, it's like fuel to the fire. It's like you're teaching. They're receiving. Enlightenment's going on. The Holy Spirit's working. They're excited. You're getting power. You don't have to worry about anything else. You just have to worry about just speaking what God has given you to speak. And they're receiving, and they're giving back. And there's this back and forth thing that happens. It may look like you're sitting there, and I'm talking. That is not what's happening. There is like something is going on here between us. We are sharing connection during this time. That's why you love me and I love you, right? Because there's a connection. We are on journey together. And as I'm sharing and the Holy Spirit's opening your eyes to new truth that's changing your life, you're getting excited. And as you're getting excited, it's affirming the work of the Spirit in me. And so when a whole church is on journey together and they've got the three legs working, it's not just your story. You don't realize, when you're not growing, you are ripping off everyone in this room. Amen. We don't realize, hey, it's, it's not bothering anyone but me. Yes, it is. If you're not adding fuel to the fire, you're pulling out a log. Right? And so it's synergistic. So then it raises a great question for us then. And there on your note sheet, it says, pursuing God, the key question and so here's the question I want to ask you today as we begin to wrap it up. Don't get your hopes up. We're not done yet, but uh, <laughs> the question is, what are you pursuing? We've seen today, I, I want to take you back. Remember I said this, I said, hey, don't forget this. We're going to come back to it. What we learned today is that what we pursue is our God by definition. Our highest pursuit is our God. We may say something else, God, but whatever we pursue the most. So what are you pursuing? Um, it's where we have to start this journey. Essentially, um, we started the day with a story, right? We started the day with a story of this, uh, this man. He spent the night at his friend's house. He gets up. It's dark. He's trying to get the furniture. He goes out. He's going to hike to the edge of town and go up to this tall cliff. This is a Jesus story, right? So I've taken some liberties, but I'll tell you what they are. Uh, so... Here's what's happened. This story happens early in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1. Jesus has just moved to Capernaum. He's made it his headquarters. It's a great crossroads there, uh, international crossroads. And about 10,000 people in Capernaum. So he, he's moved there just recently, and he has just done some of his first healings. It's the end of the Sabbath, so he's done a bunch of healings that night. And so word is spreading, you know, and things, his life is going to suddenly get very busy. And uh, one of the women that he heals that night is Peter's mother-in-law. And so uh, we know that Jesus, we know from the text that he was having dinner with her, right? That she, she got up and served him and they had him dinner. So, um, so anyway, so uh, my hunch is Jesus probably spent the night at Peter's house. It's probably where he was staying. He probably hadn't bought his own place yet or whatever. You know, he later said, son of man has no place to lay his head. He's probably staying with friends. And so he'd had dinner at Peter's house, probably staying with Peter. So anyway, he wakes up in the morning and this is what we're told in the text, uh, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still what? Dark. dark. Uh, oh, dark 30. All right. Before dawn, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to where? Solitary. A solitary place. Now, we don't really know where that was. So he went off and prayed. 
Um, but I'm pretty familiar now with the area of Capernaum. I'm, I've been there many times, and so I'm pretty clean. You, you can't go south there because the sea, it's right on the sea. Probably not east, it's over to Gentile country. It's probably going to go north into the, the, the gentle rolling hills up there. We always go to, you know, for the Sermon on the Mount kind of thing, uh, traditional site. But uh, whenever I'm in Israel, one of my favorite places to go, it's my favorite hike, is uh, the tall cliff on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee called Mount Arbel. It's about an hour and a half hike. It's like kind of an adventure hike. You're climbing over rocks, and they've got metal handholds to help you up. And there's uh, crusader, ca- crusader caves with air, you know, slits for the arrows. And it's just kind of a fun hike. And so when you get on top of it, though, it is stunning because you're overlooking the whole Sea of Galilee. You're right there. You're overlooking the whole sea. And it's just like you just picture Jesus like walking on water, right, until like a jet ski goes by. And, you know, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, Peter could have used one of those. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you're Jesus, you walk. Peter, take the jet ski. Uh, yeah, so, um, so it's just stunning. And every time I'm there, I just think, you know, Jesus had to come. Some of these solitary times where he totally takes all the time. He had to come up here sometime. It's just like it's the tallest place, about an hour, an hour and a half hike. It's like it's beautiful. Like how could you not, right? So we don't know if it was there that day or on those hills by the <laughs> Beatitude, but he goes out to a solitary place to spend time with God. Now, this is really interesting to me because his life is starting to heat up. And what we're going to see that Jesus is going to do this often. Luke's gospel says he did it often. Um, and what you see, though, it's almost always early in the morning or late at night. Um, like you never see, you don't, you don't see very much in the middle of the day. So you, early in the morning before or late at night. Uh, my hunch is just because that's the only time he had. It's like he's, he's a busy guy. You know, people are coming. And so, hey, he's going to go before everyone else gets up or he's going to go late at night. So what does that tell you? in terms of priority. What is he pursuing? Well, it's obvious in his schedule, what he's pursuing. And what strikes me as so profound is that what this suggests, like Jesus realizes that if he's going to stay on track with his ministry, if he's going to carry out the calling on his life, he, he needs his time alone. Now I want you to think with me. If Jesus needed time alone to stay on track with his father. And he was willing to stay up all night or late at night or early in the morning. And he felt like this was so important for him to have time to connect with his father so he was strong and renewed and on target and he didn't give in to temptation. If Jesus felt like to stay on track, he needed regular time alone. What does it say about you and me? I think it's where we need to start. There's a great quote from John Piper, famous pastor in the Midwest. Uh, I am constantly astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as though happiness were to be found by giving him 2% of their attention. Surely the end of the ages will reveal this to be absurd. I think it's where we need to start our journey. What are you pursuing? What does your calendar reflect that you are pursuing? Is it, does it reflect a high priority for large groups? Probably. Does it high priority for small groups? Probably. How about the third leg? You see, I am more and more convinced that if we want to live an epic life, if we want to be transformed, if we want to have impact and have a deep relationship with God, there's no substitute for this third leg of time alone. And so as we start this journey in this series, 
I want to ask you, who are you pursuing? And I want to ask you the bigger question, are there any gods in your life that are more important than the Lord God? Is, is there any people, are any pleasures, any possessions, any positions? Is there any popularity that's, that's, that is really what you pursue because you believe is living water that will leave you broken and empty and dissatisfied and thirsty? And we're going to be going into a time of communion, and I know that's a code word for put your notes away. Please don't do that. I'm not done yet. Almost done, but not done. But what I want to say is, as we go into communion today, for many of us, for the first time in our life, we understand these words of Jesus. We understand what communion is about. That a follower of Jesus is someone who's entered the new covenant. Someone who has had their sins forgiven through his death, someone who's received the Holy Spirit to be transformed and gotten rid of our idols, and someone that is therefore pursuing God in relationship. Remember the three marks? The three marks of the covenant? Forgiveness, transformation, yes, relationship. And so what it means to be a follower of Jesus is we, we are forgiven for our sins, we put away our idols, we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and write His law in our hearts. And then we enter a relationship. And so the question is, as we come to communion, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you not to take communion. It's a symbol of, of covenant. When you enter into covenant with Jesus at some point, that will be appropriate. But as we come to this covenant renewal ceremony, a covenant reminder ceremony, are there any gods you need to put away? You know, it's interesting, in, in the book of James, James is writing to Christians, and he uses this analogy from the Old Testament of adultery, spiritual adultery, and he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So submit yourselves to God, come under his leadership, resist the devil, the temptation, and he will flee from you, and then he makes this incredible prom promise for, as God speaks to an adulterous people. He says, come near to God, and he will what? Come near to you. Let's do that together. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of communion around the room. There are tables, and as the music begins to play, after I pray, you'll be able to go. Let's pray together. Lord, we come today. We want to celebrate the new covenant that through your life and death and resurrection, you have initiated the new covenant of Jeremiah, that you have forgiven our sins, you've written your law in our hearts, and you have called us into this deep relationship as we experience the presence of God, the living water, the only thing that can satisfy. So as we come today, God, we pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd shepherd us, you'd convict us, you'd direct us, and you'd help us to answer the question, who are we, what are we pursuing with the right answer? We pray it in your name, amen. Amen. So let's go to the tables. Lord, we thank you for the price you paid for the new covenant to say you love us and the way you pursue us. God, we pray you would work in our hearts, that you would write your law on our hearts so we might pursue you in kind. We pray, God, that we, we know we can't create that kind of passion on our own. It's a work of your spirit. It's not in our natural human self. But Lord, we know that our part is to lay down our idols. We know our part is to give you permission to change our heart. And Lord, we pray as we do that, you would write a new law in our hearts. So Lord, well, you are our first love, our highest priority, 
and our deepest passion. We pray as we come to worship you now. We pray as we invite you into this moment. We pray as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings. Would you meet us with your powerful presence in Christ's name? We pray that you would come. Amen. Amen. He said, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go forward. And when you said yes, he said, now show us your glory. Now that we know you're going on this trip, we just want more. And so, God, that's the prayer of our church. Show us your glory. Reveal to us your amazing love, your spectacular beauty, your incredible brilliance, your intelligence, that we would just fall in love with you all over again and that you would capture our hearts. We'd see there's nothing in creation can take the place of the creator. There is nothing of the good gifts you've given us that can satisfy the deepest thirst of our heart apart from the presence of God. We pray that, God, you would give us the courage to lay down our idols, the faith to rise up and follow, and that we would drink deeply from this living water that you have come to provide us from this spring of living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, Amen, Rocky Peak. Amen. Well, may the Lord be with you this week as we go. Uh, as we go, there's uh, prayer at the sides, uh, both, uh, both of our venues. And uh, may you have a fantastic week as we pursue God together. Amen? Amen. Okay, see you then.